0: Welcome to the All In Gospel Bible Study. Each week we move chapter by chapter through the Bible towards a comprehensive understanding of what the Bible teaches. All In Gospel is recorded live in White Bear Lake, Minnesota, featuring Dr. Sean Dickers. And it came to pass. And listen to this, this is God's story. So he becomes Artaxerxes, by the way, is arguably the stepson of Esther. So you think of Esther's story, setting all of this up, this moment for the hinge of history of Jesus Christ walking into Jerusalem. This moment is all getting set up. Uh, uh, Esther would still be alive. She likely has a major influence on Artaxerxes. She would have been the queen mother. She would have also been at court. Still, the king is supreme and you want to be, you know, this isn't a president. This is a king who can execute on a word. You want to be careful how you talk to a king. The fact that the king notices his, that he's never been sad, I couldn't get over this. If you know somebody really well and they're in the room with you every single day, a coworker, and that person comes to work every day and they're ready to work, you know, they're not always giddy and cheerful, but they're always like, I'm here to work, I'm here to do my thing. How are you doing? I'm good enough to work. I got a little stuffy nose today. But never coming in bringing their baggage with them, right? Just good and faithful worker. We get to see the sense that the king who is above everything notices Nehemiah is not his normal self and, and actually says it. I've never, I've never been sad in his presence before. Nehemiah knows this about himself. He's made a willful decision that when he goes to work every day, he's going to work faithfully and he's not going to bring his baggage to work because it's not his work's problem what's going on at home. I don't know if you've ever worked with somebody like this where they constantly talk about their problems at work. No commentary on the coffee shop here, by the way. But you're putting your burdens on other people. And he's been praying for four months about this. But this particular day, after four months, the feelings kind of, it comes through enough for the king to go, wow, you're usually like on your game every day. What's going on? And verse two, therefore, the king said to me, the reason for the king wanting to know about this is because of a good relationship with a non-believer. He's actually built a friendship with the king, a level of trust with the king. The reason he can speak into this situation and have a Gentile non-believer help the cause of the the people of God is because he's got a healthy relationship with them. He hasn't been antagonistic. He's been a faithful worker. And, And the king notices this sort of thing. Therefore, it's the cause of the opportunity is the character of Nehemiah as a child of God. People say, man, I don't get the opportunities to work for God a lot. Well, are you being faithful in the things that God's given you? Are you consistent at work? Do you show professional behavior? Are you being used by God by being faithful at your job? And if you can't be faithful in the little things, why would God give you big things? Also, non-believers happen to be watching you every single day. If you've given the clue and told people that you follow the Lord, every person's watching you. What does that look like when somebody follows the Lord? Colossians 3.23, whatever you do, work heartily for as the Lord and not for men. We don't go to work to work for a boss. We go to work because we're pleasing our God when we do work well. And Nehemiah, like clearly that's verse 2, therefore that's the reason God was able to use Nehemiah was years of faithfulness in the workplace. What if your calling in life is to work an entire lifetime consistently and faithfully be used for one moment in one person's life i think as christians we always think that that, like we're ready for the big thing but what if the big thing is just faithfulness and consistency and living as a good person on this earth in defiance of everything the enemy wants to do and the culture wants to do and the flesh wants to do we just live faithfully so he becomes dreadfully afraid why is he so afraid because this is artaxerxes (laughs) Like, shoot, I came to work and I, did, I wasn't on my game. I dropped the ball once and he's burdened. He's been looking for this opening and he doesn't intrude, demand, he doesn't force the issue. But the king just asked him what the problem was. The opportunity just got handed to him. And if he's been praying for this for four months, I think fear here is legit. What if I say the wrong thing? What if I do the wrong thing? I got this opportunity to share what's on my heart and, and we think, man, there's just no room for error here. i got to do it right. But the Scriptures tell us not to worry about that, that the Holy Spirit will give us the right words at the right time. He has to be respectful, but it's amazing how bold this request is. He's not sheepish. He's not apologizing for it. He's, this is the opening he's been waiting for, and he wants to be respectful. I want to point out, too, he doesn't blame Ezra for not finishing the walls. Right? That was on Ezra's heart too. It's been fifteen years. And he doesn't say, well, those Jewish people didn't finish what they were told to do by Artaxerxes fifteen years ago. So he doesn't do that at all. He just says, verse three, "And, and he said to the king, May the king live forever. Again, acknowledging who he's talking to first. Why should my face not be sad when the city, the place of my father's tombs lies waste and its gates are burned with fire? Then the king said to me, what do you request? So I prayed to the God of heaven. <laughs> this implies Nehemiah is um, related in some way to these. This, this. He's likely rehearsed this conversation. You know that when you're like praying for somebody and you're waiting for the moment? You've re- he's probably rehearsed this statement a thousand times in his head before he gets here. And that fear is like the fear of just right before you go off the, like there's no turning back now. And so he gets into this situation and and he starts with the default, may the king live forever. This is the cupbearer. This is probably automatic. Like somebody says, hey, how's your day? And you automatically say good. When Artaxerxes talks to you and asks anything, you start with, may the king live forever. And for a cupbearer, this is more than just ironic, right? I'm actually here to protect your life as a cupbearer. So maybe after four months, this is the day that Nehemiah just started to give up on his prayers because this is the day the king noticed he was sad. Another thought here. At the end of his line, he's at the end of himself, and the king actually notices sadness. If you think if you've prayed for something for four months straight and you just have never seen the opening for it, after a while, like in the flesh, don't you just be like, maybe the Lord's just not going to do it. And you surrender yourself to the Lord's will at some point. And I wonder if to some degree, like, he prays, and at the end of verse 4 he's praying again, And there's just this idea of like a gratefulness. So the answer is honest. He doesn't say, you know, why are you so sad? He's like, I'm not sad. I'm good. I'm happy. He doesn't lie. He's truthful with his answer. His answer is also sincere. He's not being whiny. He's being very direct. His answer is also efficient. I want to point this out. How are you doing today? Well, let me tell you about my 29 problems I got. And here's, and so you ever, and, That gets hard to listen to sometimes, and he doesn't just gush or unload on the king every minimal detail. He gives the summary statement. Also, his answer does not assume that it's the king's job to worry about what he's worried about. Think about this as Christians. Like this, for me, is, boy, when somebody asks for something and I'm trying to give a prayer request to somebody, maybe I should think about those four elements. Maybe my prayer request should just be straight-up honest not sugarcoating, making it look worse or better than it is. Sincere. This is something that's actually on my heart. Maybe it should be efficient. When I tell my prayer request, I don't gush for 20 minutes. I just tell them what the thing is. And maybe I should not assume that the person I'm telling is, going, is obligated in any way, shape, or form to be as burdened about that thing as I am. And just there's a humility in, in every aspect of Nehemiah and how he operates. So it fr- he frames it as a question. He says, what's the problem? And he says, why wouldn't I have a problem? This is a great basis for conversation. You know, you have to know why I'm sad today, right? And presuming that, if anything's being presumed, it's presuming that they might want to know more. But the very first answer Hezekiah gives before he prays in verse 4 is a very short summary of everything we've read about so far. I'm being much more wordy than he was. When asked of our joy we could respond the same way why are you so joyful why shouldn't i be joyful you know why are why are you know why are you so excited about church why are you so excited about the word of god why shouldn't i be excited about the word of god and again that that response that nehemiah has is one we can use too we could do that with any issue whatsoever where we we have a burden about something and other than explaining the burden we just assume that it's a burden for real and sincerely and honestly of course I believe in God. Why wouldn't I believe in God? Of course I serve an almighty king. Why wouldn't I? And it, again, it puts the conversation back on the other person without taking away any dignity from that person. You're actually ascribing dignity to people because you're, you're not thinking that they wouldn't think that. And that's hard to do sometimes. The other thing about his answer is there's no blame here at all. He doesn't gossip. He doesn't diminish other people like some, somebody else has failed. Artaxerxes you could say Artaxerxes you failed you gave a command 15 years ago that hasn't been kept you're not tending to your empire but there's no hint of that kind of diminishment or gossip about Ezra about Artaxerxes about the Jewish people and look at how the king responds I think this is the response of somebody who's used to power he doesn't want to quibble or get into it it doesn't matter the idea is there's a problem and the king's like what's the solution So the question is, why wouldn't I be upset about these things? And then the king says, what do you want? Like, let's just cut past all the stuff. What do you want? Great respect is shown for Nehemiah, but Nehemiah has shown great respect to this person too. Again, you can't overstate how this is all possible because of a value of other people even that don't believe in his God. And the treatment Nehemiah has so the king says, what do you request? And instead of going right to the answer, notice the end of verse 4. So I prayed to the God of heaven. This is what you call praying without ceasing. You're in that moment and somebody says, why do you believe in Jesus Christ? Don't answer that question before you pray. Take a pause. It can take a half second to make that prayer in your head. Lord, give me the words. Here we go. Help me to, help me to do it the way you want me to do it. I don't know what this person needs to hear, but you do to be honest in it. The persistence of prayer in Nehemiah, I think is fairly unique in the Old Testament. I I can't recall a situation where we've seen that praying in the moment or that praying in the middle of a conversation that we see here. So it's a precious verse, verse four, to see that he's, that he's in front of the most powerful human being on the planet at this time, yet he understands who's really the most powerful being on heaven or earth. And he gives that nod to God before he gives the nod to the king. There's patience. He's not in a rush to say what he needs to say. I, this is one of my feelings. I'll get into a discussion about something and I'm, I'm always ready to talk. But Nehemiah shows much more humility and patience. He's not presuming he knows how to answer this question, even though he's been thinking about it for four months. It shows faith. He's trusting that God can nudge the king more than Nehemiah can nudge or manipulate the king. Think about this when you evangelize or when you're talking to somebody. Are you going to say the right words or do you need God to give you the right words? There's a humility. Third, there's the patience, the faith, but also third, I think this is relieving. If I read this right, I don't have to come up with the right words. So the burden of what I have a heart for doesn't be, I don't have a burden for how to communicate that thing. You know, and people will say, well, how do you prepare for a Bible study? And it's like, well, I study and I pray a lot. That's how to prepare. It's God's job to say and do the right thing. And we don't really have a lot to fear because if we're willing, we can't really screw it up from that point. Because if we're willing and we screw up, well, God maybe allowed that to happen. If people that are that immediate in prayer and are that constant in prayer, they're going to have more success in these moments. And Nehemiah, so I prayed to the God of heaven. That's, you don't do that unless you've made a lifestyle of doing that. It's very hard to stop mid-conversation to say a word of prayer to the Lord unless you're in the habit of doing it. And Nehemiah, in this great moment that he's been praying for, that's what happens. Verse 5, And I said to the king, If it pleases the king, and if your servant has found favor in your sight, listen to the humility. I ask that you send me to Judah, to the city of my father's tombs, that I might rebuild it. So this is the second time he has not said the word Jerusalem. Jerusalem remember was they got the letters sent and Jerusalem's this thing. I don't know that He's hiding the fact that it's Jerusalem because the king will surely find that out But I think he's tactfully and diplomatically not bringing that word in right up front Because it's a hot-button word it would have sent some people at court to get upset and Some people at court, you know would have been cheering for it But either way this is a very wise request and how he makes it um, if it pleases the king is the start of it. So again, just like he dealt with God, if you understand authority, you understand authority. And if he understands that with God, he has to say, if it pleases you, he does the same thing dealing with a human king. There's a a pattern of behavior that will help Nehemiah to be successful. If it pleases the king, he's not presuming that it will. Maybe the king won't like this idea, so he's not presuming it. And if your servant has found favor in your sight, maybe I haven't. Maybe as a cupbearer, you don't think I've done the job. But if you have, I ask that you send me to Judah. Again, avoiding the word Jerusalem here. To the city of my father's tombs. Um, Very unusual move to say this. He's submitting to the king's pleasure and to the king's will, which is another act of faith. He's trusting that God is going to move Artaxerxes' heart. He doesn't have to do that work. So that I might rebuild. And Nehemiah is giving up, I, I've said this before, a cush job at court to go and toil and do hard labor and work and be out in the dust and the wind and the, the, the cinder block dust and the mortar dust. And he's leaving a very comfortable life to go ask to do a very miserable life that I might rebuild the city. Then the king said to me, the queen also sitting beside him, that could be a reference to Esther. And that might be why they threw that in there. How long will your journey be? And when will you return? So it pleased the king to send me and I set him a time. (laughs) I like this. Um, I don't think there's any other reason to mention the queen other than that it's Esther, the queen mother. right? So not his wife, but the the higher ranking mother queen still there. It's an offhand comment, but Nehemiah throws it in there. Um, And then he sets him a time. I just want to point that out. Like, the fact that he's been so humble and, and the king's like, okay, what do you need and whatever? And he's like, oh, actually, here's the schedule. I've got it all planned out. So once the king dings in, he's got the plans ready to go. Think about this as just a child of God. You're praying for God to do something for four months. Well, what are you doing during that four months? We know he's been praying and fasting, but he's also been planning and getting ready for it. And I think this is, we just had our, our family meeting as a group, right? And it's like, hey, here's 20 ideas. What do you all think of these things? And some ideas we like, some ideas we didn't like. But that's called planning. (laughs) So in knowing that God wants this thing to happen, well, we can do plans and still give them up to the Lord. And we can wait on plans and we can give up plans that we thought this was a good idea, but I guess the Spirit's not in it we won't do it. But Nehemiah has been making plans. So he gets out his presentation board, gets his PowerPoint going. Now that you asked King, let me show you the plan. And the way that gets phrased is I set him a time. Here's how long it's going to take. Here's all that sort of thing. And then a furthermore, (laughs) and he keeps going. Furthermore, I said to the King, so now it's like, okay, here you go. I'm going to unload it if it pleases the king, let letters be given to me for the governors of the region beyond the river that they must permit me to pass through till I come to Judah. Remember Ezra's problems and how much delay there was because the, the papers weren't in order? Nehemiah's like, I want the papers in order. I want to do this legal-like. I want your authority. Verse 8, and a letter to Asaph, the keeper of the king's forest, that he must give me timber to make the beams for the gates in the citadel which pertains to the temple. And king, I want all your lumber for the city wall and for the house that I will... Oh, and, and I want a house too. <laughs> the house that I'll occupy. And the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God upon me. He had a calendar he knew the legal requirements. He had checked the zoning codes. He had knew the resources he would need. He had the goals for the work, and everything organized, ready to go. This is why he was so scared of her a few verses ago, because he's got all this stuff. Like his home has got the whole wall filled with paper and little strings attaching it. Like he's been mapping this out diligently. So when the king asks, he's able to say it. Prayer. Allows the burden to be realized and the planning to happen before the opportunity ever shows up. Or as Ben Franklin used to say, God helps those who help themselves. Not biblical, but Ben Franklin. Or Seneca, luck is what happens when preparation meets opportunity. Nehemiah can take the opportunity because he's done the preparation. Practice makes perfect, fake it till you make it. There's a certain wisdom to Nehemiah that he's not waiting for anything. Or just saying, well, if the Lord doesn't act in four months, I guess I don't have to do anything. He's doing everything he can do up until doing it. So it's not an idle prayer when he does this. An idle prayer would be like, God, fix this thing, but I don't have time to do anything other than for myself. right? He's not praying like that. He's like, God, fix this thing, and I'm going to do everything I can do with my spare time to be ready to go if you call me to do it. So I'm going to act as though we're moving forward. And yet he still uses that respectful tone if it pleases the king. He's not arm-twisting. The, he's not trying to manipulate. He's allowing a respectful no to happen. And maybe part of this is he likes his life at court, right? You have every opportunity to say no. And I'm going to allow that, but boy, if you say yes to this preposterous proposal I'm making, I, I, I'm willing to go. So he knows the king has the resources. He knows that the king can help and has the power to do it, and he boldly asks for it. This is what I want. Now, what if the king said, no, I want you to be my cupbearer? I think Nehemiah would have been like, according to God's will, okay. I'm going to just submit to that fact because God's put me under this authority. According to the good hand of my God upon me. And the ending of that, and the king granted them to me according to the good hand of my God. He's somehow associating this earthly king and this amazing blessing, and he's crediting God for what just happened. You ever heard when you first became a Christian, you ever hear Christians talk like that? They got the car fixed. Oh, praise God, I found a good mechanic. Wait, you just found a good mechanic. That's an earthly thing. Why are you praising God for that thing? Because this is part of what we see in the scriptures, that God works through fairly mundane things as much as he does miracles. So did you find a good mechanic, or or was it just as likely you found a, a thrifty mechanic, or a a shyster mechanic that's going to rip you off, right? But the fact that you found one that didn't rip you off, maybe that's a blessing from God that God's helped to guide those things. And I honestly think this is part of like how life works. We don't need financial blessing from God, but boy, it's nice to just have the hand of God upon your life. And then just, and you know, some people like this, it's like, boy, it seems like everything works out in your favor. How does that work? And you're like, I don't know. I'm just glad that God decided to operate that way with me. And you meet other people where it seems like everything just works against them all the time. And I don't know if that's God doing something in that situation either. We don't know, but we can definitely see that God's hand is operating in the day-to-day interactions that we have. So Artaxerxes grants him the paperwork, the authority, the lumber, the full uh, hand of the king Artaxerxes is just handed over to his cupbearer. And he promotes a servant to be a governor. So... uh, really no other account of that in any ancient history ever. So he just asked for something that no one else in the history of the world has ever been handed. The closest you get is Daniel or uh, David going from harpist to king. but there was a whole like running from the king and battles and an entire life that went between those two things. With Nehemiah, it just happens in a moment. So as God's good hand does these things, the power of God is there. So truly God of Israel, or savior you work in mysterious ways and i don't know what all those ways are they are mysterious but that is how god works isaiah 45 15 then he carries out the plan then i went verse nine the went there is by the way eight hundred miles then i went to the governors of the region behind the river and gave them the king's letters (laughs) solving a problem that ezra had now the king had sent captains of the armies and horsemen with me Again, solving a problem that Ezra had 15 years ago. Remember, he took off and then he stopped and he went back to the king and asked for troops. Nehemiah's better planned than that. And he gave them the king's letters. And now the king sent captains of the army and horsemen with me when Sanballat the Horonite, that's another word for a Moabite, it's one of the Moabite tribes, and Tobiah the Ammonite official heard it, they were deeply disturbed that a man had come to seek the well-being of the children of Israel. It's Not that he's building a wall, It's that he actually cares for the Jews. How dare he care for the Jews? So it's an entirely irrational thing. God looks often for people that care for the well-being of others. And Nehemiah, again, is divided like that. He looks for stewards in the parables. He looks for shepherds. He looks for caretakers. He looks for overseers, people who look around them and think, I want to help the people around me. And God looks for those people to put them into leadership. Nehemiah is not just dreaming of it, he's actually doing it. Satan or adversarial resistance does not show up back in the phone room. Our desire to do good things is not even a threat to the enemy. It's our actually doing good things that is when resistance actually shows up. So dream all you want of doing great works for God. Satan loves that, and he'll keep you in dream mode for years. It's when you actually take that step out the gate and start doing that work, that's the problem. Matthew 25, 21. And the Lord said to him, Well done, thou good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a few things. I'll make you ruler over many things. Enter into the joy of the Lord. This isn't a question of salvation. Nehemiah is going to experience joy because he's willing to do God's work. There is a huge blessing, and the blessing is joy, when we put ourselves out there to serve the Lord. The plans of the diligent surely lead to plenty, but those of everyone who is hasty leads to poverty. Planning is, my point being, faithful, obedient planning has something to do with contentment and consistency in our lives. If we're faithful in things, there is a blessing that comes with that. We can be willing to move when the Spirit leads, but actually doing the moving is part of what gets the blessing in the kingdom of God. Willful action. Less talk, more walk, that sort of thing. So they were deeply disturbed. Let's talk about the resistance. Um, Nehemiah has the letters ready, so there's nothing they can do other than be upset, because he's doing. He's been. priest prepared for this. Part of his preparation is seeing the problems that came up with Ezra. And I just want to point this out. Part of our preparation as people of God to serve Jesus is looking at how people have served Jesus in the past. And learning from their mistakes and part of this is why it's really good if you hang out with believers from all generations you should have some believers that are older than you that you spend some time with they've probably been through some things and made some mistakes like Ezra that you could learn from so and again you would think it's good that he seeks the well-being of any group of people but they don't want the well-being of the children of God and I think this is an interesting thing when it comes to people who resist Christianity they don't actually want strong, healthy, safe, secure believers around. They would much rather believers were fearful, hiding in a crate, ashamed of their name of Jesus, not willing to talk about things because they're worried of offending people. What these two people want is they want a weak, wallless, vulnerable people of Israel. They like the fact that those people in Jerusalem are open to attack. They're fine with it. Their opposition for Nehemiah doesn't happen when he prays, doesn't happen when he fasts, it doesn't happen when he takes on a burden. It doesn't happen when he take, does all his planning for four months. There's no resistance organizing it. There's not even resistance from Artaxerxes. The resistance is when he takes a step out the door and he starts carrying out the plan with the, what he needs to do it. On the flip side, God's power grows as his people move forward. And you think of this when they, when they were crossing the Jordan River And God had them go step in the river, and then he stopped the waters. But he made them get their feet wet. Literally where we get the phrase, I'm just going to jump in and get my feet wet. So God, I think with Nehemiah, he really engages in the battle after he arrives and is ready to start doing the construction. But when resistance grows, so does God's power, his protection, his peace, and his joy. They all go hand in hand. Uh, in this sense, as believers, don't be satisfied with a mundane life in a corner. Enter into these conversations with people you know, because the blessing of God will come with those conversations, regardless of how people react. So more leadership from Nehemiah. Uh, and I like this too. He arrives in Jerusalem with all this authority, but he does not come and start bossing around uh, people. Right? Ezra had a whole group of faithful people, but they haven't finished the work you'd think he would come and start yelling at people and, hey, why are you not doing this? Who's doing this? And he, he, he does something really unique beforehand. He just sees what's there. So I'm going to read a larger section here. So I came to Jerusalem and was there three days. And I rose in the night, I and a few with me. I told no one of what my God had put on my heart to do at Jerusalem, nor was there any animal with me except the one on which I rode. And I, that's what a rich person says, by the way. Has more than one animal. And I went out by night through the valley gate to the serpent well, to the refuse gate, and viewed the walls of Jerusalem which were broken down and its gates which were burned with fire. Then I went on to the fountain gate and the king's pool, but there was no room for the animal under me to pass. So I went up in the night by the valley and viewed the wall. And then I turned back and entered by the valley gate and so returned. What this describes is a full circle. He goes all the way around the city. He gets to a spot where he can't get his horse through. And so he goes down into the valley and back up to where he started. So that all those descriptions mean he just did a full circle. And the officials did not know where I had gone or what I had done. I had not yet told the Jews, the priests, the nobles, the officials, or the others who did the work. No need. He's been called by God to do a thing. He doesn't need to tell people what he's going to do. He needs to just do it. And I've met a lot of Christians that are like, I got this idea. I want to do this. I want to do that. And instead of being like that, he's just just methodically doing this. Nehemiah shows a lot of reserve as a leader. He's not just blabbing the, the vision to everybody. He's coming in. He's going to see the scene. He's sizing things up. He's recognizing how many holes there are. Now he's gone from the gates of Jerusalem. Now he's actually seeing each of these different gates. It's not just one gate, it's many gates. So he notices the work. I think this is interesting. In the book of Ezra, Ezra saw the spiritual problems. right? we got to get our hearts straightened out. Nehemiah comes in and he's, he's much more practical. And they're both godly men. And they're both godly people, but they approach the problems very differently. Ezra, as a priest, starts with the heart. Nehemiah, as a governing leader, sees the practical issues. And they're both important for God's people. They're both dysfunctional systems that need to be fixed and structures that need to be rebuilt. And he, and, and he makes a point. He says, I told no one. That's discernment. We can be open and say everything with our mouths or we can choose what to say with our mouth and when we say it to people. He's not hiding what he's up to. Clearly, he just showed up with letters and maybe even lumber shipments coming from like the king's forest. And he showed up with a contingent of soldiers. Everybody that was in Jerusalem knows that Nehemiah has arrived. But the fact that he goes out at night and does this secret thing, some people look at this and the three days in verse 11, coming by night, arose with me. Some people point out that Jesus was three days in Jerusalem before the night in the garden. And they'll look at this and do that. I tried to see that. The fact that he goes all the way around Jerusalem, I don't see Jesus doing that. Um, The fact that he's recognizing that there's problems there, you know, if that's a blessing to you and you want to read into that more, it definitely could be a mirror of those things. I don't see that it's a great fit. Um, But the fact that he doesn't tell everybody, I think that's fairly interesting. The people with Nehemiah would have probably known what he was up to. He does bring a few people with him, and that is kind of mirroring of Jesus Christ. He had 12 disciples that knew what was up. But Jesus doesn't go blabbing to everybody what's going on before it happens, before the work that happens in the same city is going to happen. He's not rushing it, but he's also not going too slow. And there's conversations to hear. I think as believers, something we can learn from that is there are times and places to have conversations, and discernment is from the Holy Spirit tells us when to have what conversations with who. And a lot of Christians are like, I just want to rule. I just want to know that I always act this way in every situation, but the reality is God asks for us to develop wisdom and discernment over time. No need to boast, no need to give away the big plans, no need to minimize either. And he went out by night, verse 13. This is private. He's planning. I got to think a man of prayer is praying as he goes around the city. He's going to take the spiritual territory before he does anything else. In Gusick, the word viewed is something he looks at. In Nehemiah 2.13 and 2.15, the word viewed is a medical term for probing a wound and seeing the extent of the damage. So he's, he's inspecting, inquire, he's doing an x-ray on the city, is what those words are. He doesn't just believe the reports he got from his brother, he actually goes to see it from himself. Here's another lesson we can learn in leadership. I think as a leader, it's the, the glory of a king to seek a matter out. And Nehemiah recognizes that people will, t- will color their descriptions of what happened and what is. So people exaggerate or they minimize, usually for their own selfish purposes. And even though Nehemiah trusts his brother, he trusted him that there were problems in Jerusalem. But once he gets to Jerusalem, he's going to go probe that wound for himself to see what it is. He's not going to do surgery before he understands the, the issues. This is a really bad metaphor for this, but I went over to see Mike Houck, who got the knee surgery this week. And it's funny because he was showing off his wounds because I like to see the gore. And on the leg where he had the the surgery, it says yes in like a Sharpie marker because the hospitals now are like, that is the leg we're going to do surgery on. So they have different people confirm it or whatever. I think Nehemiah is kind of like that. Before he's going to get to work, he's doing that pre-surgery inspection of the city. Here's what needs to get done. So he's got a big Sharpie marker and he's writing yes on every hole. These are the things that need fixing. So we should also note that part of him going around the city, he's seeing a temple on the Temple Mount. He sees an altar on the altar that's there. Uh, there is very little insecurity for Nehemiah and part of this is he's coming with troops that are also going to protect this. He's following this new creation, this new fission, that has already been underway, and he's jumping into a project that other believers have started. And I think this is interesting. When you show up to a new fellowship, a new Bible study, a new church, and you're coming into a work that other believers have already started, Nehemiah doesn't jump in and give his opinion, right? He takes three days to just pray, to walk around it, to see the situation. And I think in this he can then move forward and be part of that community, but he actually knows what that community needs before he opens his mouth. So he's not focusing on the negative. He's, I think he's, he's willing to see the holes, but he's not focused on them. He's been fairly positive the whole first two chapters, but in this case, he's actually willing to open his eyes and see what the problems are. Again, as a body, as a church, isn't it a wonderful thing when you meet godly people that are willing to just be honest about what their problems are? And as a body, what are things we need to work on? And occasionally you open the door to do that. Even though he doesn't focus on the negative, he's willing to see it in truth for what it is so that he can address it. And he does this in silence and without talking to people and gossiping to people. And, man, did you see the holes in this wall? You've seen all these problems? He's not going to talk like that. Any work that we do for the kingdom of God requires an honest survey and an honest review, even a self-review of our own lives to actually start doing this. Whoever has no rule over his own spirit is like a city broken down without walls, Proverbs 25, 28. We're like this city. And when we walk, if we got a life that needs fixing, what are our gaps? What are the things we need to do? How many times do you meet people and their life is just a disaster, but they're completely unwilling to do self-reflection? It's part of why their life is a disaster. They don't see major flaws that everyone around them can see. No officials, or the officials that are here. Uh, I I think that Nehemiah doing this on his own, maybe this is just my own read into it. He's not going to lead by committee. Like he doesn't include all these groups of people because he's going to lead by what God tells him to do. And he's going to lead that way. So he's not trying to please everybody. I'm sure after three days, they're very anxious to hear, why are you here? What are you doing? And so for not talking for three days and leaving these people out of the loop, they're all, he's also establishing a boundary between him and these people that have not done the work. That's an interesting thing. He's building physical walls, but he's actually creating a boundary that he's going to do work for Artaxerxes and for God himself. He doesn't answer to these people, which is going to be a theme in the book of Nehemiah. He doesn't have to answer to the officials, the Jews, the priests, because he, he's answering to God. And he's doing something that God's put on his heart. So... By the way, why would you include people that haven't done it in 15 years? They've been frozen because they're scared of what the Moabites and the Ammonites are thinking of them or doing to them. They're living in fear and they're terrified. They probably don't have much to offer a new work in Christ or a new work in the kingdom of God. And I, I, you know, the same thing here. Why would you take advice from a believer that's not on fire for Christ? Why would you follow that? And Nehemiah, I think, rightly leaves these people out of the loop because he's going to do a new thing that will also benefit those people. And when they see these things there, they're going to enjoy the security, but they don't need to be a part of doing something they haven't been able to do. Just to, again, maybe I'm reading too much into that. We'll discuss afterwards. Verse 17. Then I said to them, so he actually does talk to him. Then I said to him, You see the distress that we are in, how Jerusalem lies waste and its gates are burned with fire come let us build the wall of Jerusalem, that way we may, that we may no longer be a reproach. And I told them of the hand of my God, which had been good upon me, and also of the king's words that he had spoken to me. This is really interesting. He clearly lays out the vision for the work. He does it with his own research, God's hand and the word of God, the king's words. And then you see the distress. Again, he doesn't come in and say, look at how you guys have screwed up. Look at how you're doing it wrong. And I, that's sometimes our temptation when we go into a church. Well, you guys are doing everything wrong. Well, you should do it the way we do it back at my church. My church does it this way or that way. He doesn't do that at all. He, he actually says, you can see the problem in front of you. Let's fix it. And he uses the word we. You see the distress that we are now in. I'm here with you. He's a brother. He's not above them. He's, he's clearly going to lead them, but that's not he's not leading from a place where he doesn't have affinity with them. You see the distress. Some people have holes in their lives where sin still has access. Some people we know live in fear. Some people are broken and disconnected. Some people actually come and, and move about a fellowship and they never connect with the fellowship. And one approach is like, you can see what the problem is. And he's very honest about it. Nehemiah presents a common need and an obvious need. And he doesn't go off to the, you know, he doesn't name off how many holes are in the wall or how many gates need fixing. He just says, you see the disrepair. You see that there's a waste here. Something's wrong. Something's not protecting God's people. Jerusalem lies in wait. When God's people are in doubt, recoiling, permissive when there's no boundary between them and the rest of the world they're compromised and nehemiah points that out and after praying waiting asking doing planning he just comes up and he points it out jerusalem is a functional and spiritual embarrassment and when god's people gather together and the end product is a mockery a reproach is the word he uses It is a trashed, junky town, and you're an embarrassment to your God, right? This isn't exactly the words of a a leader that is worried about how they'll react. These are the words of a leader being very honest and very truthful. There's probably people in the audience, as we're going to see, who don't like this bluntness that he uses. And he says, come and let us build. He doesn't say this is all your problem, you do it. He's willing to work alongside them to serve. And he's trying to initiate a spirit of unity by invitation that's open to everyone that listens to him. Anybody can come in and help build what we're building. It's not exclusionary. The spiritual walls are that of righteousness and goodness. They're not that of separating people into different groups. Come let us build so that it is no longer a reproach. The truth is it is. That's a reason to work and give up your time and give up your labor and your resources. to a purpose to represent God well. Like when people come to the temple, they should see a place that's well kept, organized. When they're praying in the temple, they should feel safe. They shouldn't have to worry about the Moabites raiding. So let's do this. Let's build this thing. And I told them of the hand of my God. Then he's like, you wouldn't believe what God's done to get us to this point in time. Look at what God has happened. So he starts telling God stories. They don't follow Nehemiah. They follow Nehemiah's God. Think of this. One reason is because it needs fixing. Second reason is because it's embarrassing. This looks horrible. You know, fix it. The third reason is because God is to be glorified. And part of how we glorify God is to build things. They're building an actual wall, an actual church. I think spiritually, we as a church are building a work of God through the Holy Spirit. So when we look at our lives and there's an obvious gap, something that we can fix, fix it. And do it as part of a group of people with a unity of spirit. This is key to how we operate in the kingdom of God. We tell God stories. Look at what God's already done. Well, I don't think God can get rid of that addiction. Yeah, he can. Look at this over here and that person over there and this person over there. Look at how he's fixed people. God fixes. It's what he does. And so, so they said, let us rise up and build. And then they set their hands to this good work. There it is. It's not Nehemiah's work. It's all of them. He says, let us rise up and build. And the leadership provides the common goal, but God provides the energy and the unity of spirit. This is biblical leadership. All of this, we should point out, to rebuild these walls takes time. Heavy sweat labor. They did not have hydraulics. So they're moving very large stones with very large work crews, take, took time away from their homes and their own prosperity in order to advance or push forward this work of God. And God's prepped their hearts to do it. Nehemiah doesn't need to convince them. So earthly leadership says, how do I get people to do this thing I want them to do? That's earthly leadership. It's called force. How do I, con- either I manipulate them to do it, or I have dominance, or I pay them enough money But how do I get other people to do this thing I want? The godly approach is, how can I show people that this is something that glorifies God and trust that they'll have a heart to do it? That's a very different kind of leadership. It requires trust that, not only trust in God that he's doing things in people's hearts, but trust in other people that they're listening. And Nehemiah operate, he could operate with the authority of Artaxerxes and he could command work crews, but he doesn't do that. He does the exact opposite. Let's get to work on this together. It's a hundred-year-old problem. A hundred-year-old, 15 years since Ezra. And in three days, he walks around the city, and he says, let's do this. And in one conversation, I, you have to believe there's more to it, but the way it's written is God just moves like this. They, they knew the city was a mess. As Nehemiah noted that. They knew it was an embarrassment because they felt the embarrassment. So this reads like a miracle, as much as Artaxerxes noticing Nehemiah that day. There's no fear of neighbors, no laziness. No, we've always done it that way. We're used to cruddy walls. You should be used to cruddy walls. Or it's been this way for a hundred years. Just relax, Nehemiah. And there's not even a tone of, well, who do you think you are? And those are all things that I think when the Holy Spirit hasn't been working, those are natural flesh responses. There's no indication of that. So part of reading this is what we don't see as much as what we do see. Nehemiah prays, he waits, he plans, he takes opportunities with tact and humility. He moves with wisdom and discernment, but he moves and then he prays some more. And then he rallies people by depending on their love of God and the name of God being elevated. And God's people move. And then in verse 19, but when Sanballat, ironically that name means strength, the Horonite, again from Moab, Tobiah the Ammonite official, and now we have another one, Geshem the Arab. Arabs are a descendant group of the Edomites. So, And we see this use of the word Arab here. We still use that word today. Same group of people. When these three people heard of it, they laughed at us and despised us and said, what is this thing you're doing? Will you rebel against the king? Oh my, you know, Sanballat and Tobiah are back. Notice before they were just upset and distressed themselves. Now the fact that they're super triggered, now they're coming back and mocking. So we're going to escalate with these characters as we go through the book. My question is, why do they care if, if Jerusalem gets walls? And again, I think of this in our world today. Why does it matter to people when God's people just want to live righteous, holy lives? Why does that bother people so much? And there's clearly like, what is the harm of Israel to defend itself? In, in chapter 2, verse 10, they're bothered. Now they're actively opposing And they've brought in another adversary. Why do they have to add people to their numbers to feel good about their their thing? So maybe there's a selfish motive. Maybe their people are some of the people raiding the city. And this is going to make it harder for them to get cheap cash. Um, And again, we can't miss the fact that these are between the Moabites, the Ammonites, and the Edomites. These are the three groups of people that resisted Moses when he came into the land. It's the same enemies of God throughout human history that resist the people of Israel. It hasn't changed at all. The names change, Horonite from Moabite, but the groups of people are still the same. And even today, it's the same groups of people that resist Israel's growth and prosperity. Why would it matter if a space about the size of New Jersey starts exporting vegetables and making microchips and advancing science and biology and chemistry? Why does it matter that they're successful? Wouldn't you think as their neighbors that you would say, hey, can we share some of that so our people can benefit from the blessing of good leadership? And Israel has shared their technology with the world. Today's Israel and yesterday's Israel. They've always done this. And instead of saying, hey, great, we're glad these Jewish people are getting back together because they tend to be a blessing when they do, under Solomon they sure were. Instead of saying that, they're like, well, we got to stop this because we don't like when they get strong and confident and safe. So we're also going to see some motives here too. Sanballat, we're going to see in chapter 13, 28, he's actually married into the priest's family. So it's a Moabite that's married one of the daughters of the priests. Was that okay as of the book of Ezra? So in 15 years, they've started intermarrying again. So if Nehemiah brings another revival they might demand that these people separate just like Ezra did at the end of his book. This is exactly what Ezra purged in the second wave. Here it is again 15 years later. What about Tobiah? Ironically his name means Jehovah is good. Sanballat is not a Hebrew word. Tobiah is a Hebrew word. It's a Jewish name in an Ammonite family. So again likely they're intermarrying again and then they don't want what what's good for God's people because they see it as bad for their own families right then the third name this time i, I just the fact that they like to gather people unto themselves geshem the word means rain it's another jewish name with a gentile family around it uh, these should be allies of the people of god three ancient enemies here and they're laughing at and despising the people of god and then they accuse them of rebellion. Are you going to rebel too? Well, this is what they did to Ezra. They Remember, they sent a letter and they challenged, saying these people are going to rebel against the king. So this time, what they don't know is that Nehemiah's got the paperwork ready to go. He's not going to be delayed by these people. It's funny that it, they accuse rebellion. Just Again, some of you have noticed this with things in our day and age. It's funny that they accuse the Israelites of rebellion, when Nehemiah is following the orders of the king at the blessing of the king, the real people in rebellion are the people ignoring the paperwork. The people that are in rebellion are the ones laughing and mocking at what the king has ordered. So they're accusing people of exactly what they're guilty of. And in doing this, it's, it's odd because they're presuming, I think probably selfishly, that their opinion matters when the king has made an order. And they're just moving forward on this because their will is more important than the will of Artaxerxes or God himself. So that said, I want to point this out too. These three people are not the problem. They're just names attached to groups of people that have throughout the history of the Bible resisted God. They're just tools of the enemy. This laughing and mocking doesn't make a lot of sense because there's likely spiritual intervention here. There's likely something going on that makes no why would they even spend time laughing and mocking? Why don't they be back in their homes growing more gardens, feeding their families? What just I'm not, I don't worry about what my neighbor Mark is doing with his time. You know, if he started building a temple in his backyard, I would think it's weird, but I, I wouldn't go over there and laugh and mock him with my afternoon because I got projects I'm working on. So the fact that they're taking their time and doing this. I think is spiritually there's no reason for it. We don't wrestle, wrestle with flesh and blood. It's not the person that's the problem. We wrestle against spiritual armies of wickedness in heavenly places. Scorn alone cripples these Christians. So many Christians today worry about getting laughed and mocked at, and it cripples the church. We're so worried about what people think of us, we don't actually build or do things. And in that sense, the enemy's already won because we're frozen by caring about what these people think. And Nehemiah doesn't do that. He doesn't even fight them. He doesn't defend himself. They're not worthy of the battle. I just think this is great. They're not worthy of the discussion. They're mocking and laughing at him. There's no record here. He says, so I answered them. The God of heaven himself will advance or prosper us. I'm not worried about what you think. I answered to God. He just says no to these people. He he doesn't give them legitimacy enough to have an argument. And Nehemiah shows great strength in this. The God of heaven himself will prosper us, therefore we, his servants, will arise and build. But you have no heritage or right or memorial in Jerusalem. (laughs) That's a wall. That's a spiritual wall. Here's the deal, irrelevant people. We're doing God's work, and you don't have any say in it. You don't have authority or power here. So if we're going to do things for the kingdom of God, we're not asking your permission. He's got the permission of Artaxerxes. What he's doing is legal by the laws of the land. They're going to move forward. So the wall has two sides. I think verse 20 gives us both sides of the wall. We'll end on this note tonight. First of all, one side of the wall is the people of God, us. We're on one side of the wall. So Nehemiah points out what defines us, the God of heaven himself. God's in charge here. Like you're, not, you're dealing with a bunch of servants. If You got a problem, go to the king. And that defines our side of the wall. We are servants beholden to the God of heaven. Uh, again, I, I just love that <laughs> one side of the wall is God, not you. And, and we have a lot of humans that think they're more important than God. Second thing, he will prosper us. Again, the Hebrew word there is to push forward. This thing you're laughing at is going to happen. You think it's ridiculous, but we're not responsible for the success. God will push us forward. So maybe we are a bunch of lunkheads that don't know what we're doing. Okay, God's our king, and he'll push us forward. Third piece, his servants will arise and build. That's what we do. We'll, we're just going to do the work. We're going to occupy till he comes. We're going to live holy and righteous lives, not because we're perfect people, but because God says try and do it. So we're going to live under his law, not because we have to or we're obligated, but because we love God and we love his law. We submit to it willingly, not because we have to. And just that, that's our side of the wall. Perfect clarity. God's in charge. God will advance it and we'll hang out and serve and build as long as he has us here. That, it's either going to work or it's going to not. That's not our fig- thing to figure out. So take your mockery and stay on that side of the wall. Here's the other side of the wall. And again, for those of you that don't like to offend people, Nehemiah is not your type of person. He this, He's not in a conflict with them because he's simply not, and again, I think this might be being the cupbearer in the king's hall. Like he's not used to dealing with lowly people in any other way than that you guys. This is part of how God's prepared Nehemiah. His life experience has given him exactly the response that's right, which is, I'm here on behalf of God, and he doesn't even mention Artaxerxes. God of heaven himself has ordered this. Who are you? And then here's how he defines them. Three things again. You have no heritage. Ammonites, Edomites, what was the other one? Moabites, this isn't your heritage. Stay on your side of the wall. This is none of your business. Honestly, that's looking back to the past, and I, th- I think the, the, the other side of the wall is past, present, future. You're, this isn't your heritage. This isn't your past. Look, you're not Christians. Why does it matter to you what we do inside the church? This isn't your, this isn't your heritage. You haven't chosen to be an inheritor of God because you're not serving Jesus Christ. This is, you really, the past, your past decisions outlawed. And then he says, or right, that's the present. You don't have a current legal right. You don't have any authority to stop God's hand in this thing. So it's going to happen. It's, it's not your past. It's not your present. And then number three, it's not your future or memorial. I like that. that I think it's just, you're not going to have a memorial in Jerusalem. Right? And in fact, we have Nehemiah's record of this. We don't have an Ammonite, Moabite, or Edomite record of this event. It doesn't exist. This isn't your memorial. God's not doing this thing in history so you can be remembered. You're not going to get the attention for it. You're not going to get the credit for it. So this isn't your past. It isn't your present. It isn't your future. Again, when you recognize someone is insincere and hates the work of God's people, this is how Nehemiah reacts to those people. This just isn't your deal. And the prayer is, again, we don't battle against flesh and blood. The prayer is they'd say, well, I want it to be my heritage. Nehemiah's already said anybody who wants to help can help earlier in the chapter. Let's get up and read. Well, great. Come on board. You're on the team but you're not going to get credit for it. You're not going to come in and be our boss. Either you're here to serve or or, or you're you're not here. So we begin with Nehemiah, first two chapters of the book. Again, this is a book about leadership, clarity of vision, purpose, how to deal with adversaries when they try to stop God's work. And, you know, you could say the end of the second chapter, also just uh, not a disrespect of sinners, but a disregard for what they think of us right? Our hope is that they repent and they become one of us and join the family. But if they're choosing to be outside of that wall for now, they don't want to come in through the gate called Jesus Christ. Like it is, we don't worry about what they think of us. There's a distinct, there's a distinct difference, boundary, a wall between us and them, a spiritual wall. And there's one gate and that's Jesus Christ. And he called himself the gate for that reason. He's the way in, he's the truth of the matter, and he's the life that they can have. But if they choose to be outside that, they're not gonna tell me what color chairs we should get for our church. They're not gonna tell me whether or not I can have this stained glass window or a factory style or a steeple or not a steeple. It's none of their business. And when it comes to the hearts of God's believers, we should not be crippled by fear of what they think of us. Live your life, do it boldly, do it up on the hill where everybody can see you. There's nobody that's doubting what God's people are doing right now. Live it in such a way where they have to deal with you you're not dealing with them. And that's what we see in Nehemiah. We're going to see it for a lot of chapters. Again, this is a great book for people that want to get a backbone as a, as a believer. And we're going to see how Nehemiah handles it, which then I think with discernment and wisdom, we learn how to deal with people with the same kind of respect, dignity, humility, but also that, that humility understands positions of authority. And in this case, these people are not over Nehemiah and he recognizes that too. I don't owe an answer to you. We just got done with Jesus as he's at the trials. He responds to the Pharisees in a lot of similar ways as Nehemiah responds to these people. And Jesus as a young boy would have read Nehemiah and saw when you have people like this, you don't need to deal with them. And I'm just reminded of that. And they're like, are you the Christ? And he's like, if I told you, you wouldn't believe anyways. It was the same kind of, I don't need to deal with you because you, you don't have a sincere heart. You don't want this. Someday when you think maybe you've got to think about your eternal salvation, let's talk for real. But I'm not going to just argue with you about it. That's not what we do. So anyways, let's pray. Dear Lord, thank you for Nehemiah 1 and 2. Thank you for what we have to learn from it. Thank you for, uh, boy, just the honesty of your scriptures. Real people, real situations, uh, real examples that we can follow. What a gift you gave us in your word. And Lord, I just pray for each person in this room tonight to put a real blessing on their heart. Lord, fill them with peace and joy. Lord, help them to live in such a way that they know that they're doing your work faithfully. Um, Lord, that they may have a burden on their heart or a calling to ministry. Help them to be patient so that you can open up that opportunity for them. You can move that forward and you can be the Lord of their life. And when the opportunity comes, Lord, help no one in this room to have hesitation. That when somebody asks about our faith, we're ready to defend it. We're ready to be ready to give it offense. Lord, that when people want to bicker and argue, we understand that, that we're not that people. So Lord, I just pray that you move us, you change us, you make us more Christ-like every single day. In Jesus' name.